Does a liberal arts education have relevance in modern finance? That is the question I'm going to be tackling today with Jonathan Desnick. Investors seem to be torn on this topic. Billionaire investor Mark Cuban is a huge fan of liberal arts. Finance, that's the easiest thing. You just take the data and have it spit out whatever you need, right? I personally think there's going to be a greater demand in 10 years for liberal arts majors than there were for programming majors and maybe even engineering because when the data is all being spit out for you, you or you know options are being spit out for you, you need a different perspective in order to have a different view of the data. On the other hand, Vinod Kosla, founder of Sun Microsystems and Kosla Ventures, said, quote, little of the material taught in liberal arts programs today is relevant to the future. Join Jonathan and me as we discuss. So I'm joined today by Jonathan Desnick, um, who is a former classmate of mine at Yale. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Um, I'm excited to have him on today to talk about this topic. Um, I think he has some interesting uh, experiences and background that are going to really lend to uh, lend to this topic. For one, he majored in classics uh, in the humanities, was a liberal arts major, ended up going to medical school ended up working for a hedge fund, investing alongside a very influential activist investor, Alex Denner, and now is on his way to study philosophy at Oxford. Um, And there's certainly a method behind the madness. And that's why I think it's so interesting to have Jonathan on today. So, so Jonathan, I'm excited to to have you here, man. Happy to be with Um, you, Kyle. So let's let's actually dive right in and just so uh, just give us your your NPR intro where you're from um, and maybe how you chose Yale. Uh, how I chose Yale is a diff- difficult story, but uh, it 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 really was a fight between my father and I. But you know, I grew up uh, actually in Greenwich Village in New York, which was an interesting place to grow up. A lot of different people walking around. And then I went to school on the Upper East Side, so I moved up there, and I'm a born and raised New Yorker and proud of it. And the only time I've lived out of the city is when I went to college with Kyle. And so... Yeah. Well, New York, in a way, was a, a bit of a demographic liberal arts mecca, so it's, uh, it, it, is, it makes sense that you, you kind of meshed right in at the, that academic environment at yeah. Yale. Well, also, you know, to speak to New York, it's sort of an interesting place because not only do you get so many different kinds of people, but you have so many different events going on around the city at the same time. And the museums constantly have different shows, particularly living on the Upper East Side right next to Museum Mile. It's so easy just in an afternoon to stroll into any museum you like. So then you, um, you know, you get to Yale, uh, obviously. Again, liberal arts school, uh, you take full advantage of that by majoring in classics. And uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll put words in Jonathan's mouth. I know this, it was, it was not an easy decision for him because he is interested in so many things. Well, um, actually, it was an easier decision. <laughs> I'd taken years, something like seven years of Latin before I got to school. And I'd spent four years digging in high school after my freshman year in high school. In the Athenian Agora, which is the ancient marketplace in ancient Athens, yeah. where Socrates and Plato spoke. And so I, was already, I, I caught the bug of the ancient world, and so it was a natural getting to So college. you'd always had this fascination yeah, in, in the, the classics and Greek. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I would love to. We'll, we'll certainly get to that. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into um, into some of your your experiences there because I think that will will certainly shed some light on your your thought process too. But um, you know, and then let's let's jump back. You you graduate from Yale. Um, you go to medical school, and you decide to go into investing from there. And I know you'd had a background in. Um, and invest, or you had an interest, I should say, in investing really in college. Um, walk through your thought process, and we'll get we'll, we'll get to this topic here and your thoughts, generally speaking, about liberal arts in the data age. But um, I'm really, I think that the ability to, to get into your mind of of how your thought process worked in terms of going to medical school and then switching to investing um, will kind of lay the foundation of of why you have the credibility to kind of talk on this topic. Uh- I'd spin that a little differently. It's really that I got so interested in investing at the end of college that because I was so interested in that, that's what pulled me out of medical school to go then to work for a hedge fund. And so I I guess, you know, I, I was looking for a really, really big intellectual challenge at the end of college. And I'd studied classics and I took classes on everything in college really everything and i felt like i would start a new subject looking for a brand new challenge to immerse myself in a brand new field which is something you can do in america at a liberal arts school which you don't you know people around the world don't have the opportunity to do it's such a blessing that we can do that and you mean study so many different Oh, so, yeah. yeah. You can take a class in anything. Right. Whereas in Europe from 18, you have to go study whatever you decided. I mean, as a 16 or 17-year-old, how well can you know yourself to decide what you want to study? Right. Well, that's a great point, too, because I think, you know, the U.S. is very unique in that respect in terms of affording, affording um, its uh, education population the ability to really kind of figure out and explore all the topics that it, it we might be interested in exploring. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's just, let's, where do you think that th- that bodes for us compared to some of the rest of the world that really dictates that its population make a decision pretty early on what, what their field of study is going to be? Oh, I think you get a lot of really unhappy people who, who are fortunate on the one hand to have gotten into something so early before they could really know the difference mm-hmm. that they become deep enough in it by the age that they're 25, perhaps. I don't actually know. You'd have to talk to somebody who went through the system, but, you know. But at the same time, you know, you have to ask the question, do do any of us really know what we want to do? Does the liberal arts education just confuse us even more? Do we just, you know, do what we do after college because... You know, there's so many different ways we can make the decision of what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. I mean, there's, and I think the real question is, um, from a economic perspective, uh, a lot of economists and uh, investors and and thought leaders make the argument that a lot of the world is actually advancing ahead of us, and I think that's maybe where the concern comes is in is where you you see some of these countries. Um, you know, like China, you see a lot of these countries, uh, out of Europe, even, uh, that, that demonstrate a superior ability in certain subject areas, but they probably argue propels them to some sort of advancement looking forward. 
especially given that technology is becoming such an important part of the global infrastructure and economy. Um, do you think, just to ask the question point blank, do you think liberal arts still has a place in our, our world? I think it has just as much a place as it ever, as it ever did, honestly. I, I think, you know, liberal arts gives you two really big things independence of thought and really being able to think outside the box and draw connections that otherwise may not be obvious. And I think that comes from taking so many different classes and having, you know, dozed off in the middle of class and connected, you know, your tribal art, tribal Indian arts, you, you know, never dozed course off in class, material <laughs> to the physics class that you're taking to get into med school. You know, to see connections there, you'd never have the opportunity to be able to do that were you not taking totally incongruous classes at the same time. Mm -hmm. And being able to go to a university in America and take classes in totally different topics mm -hmm. really allows you to appreciate that far-off connections can be made. And if you can carry that with you for the rest of your life, yeah, I think let, you go far. So let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do the opposite of that. Uh, so you talked a little bit there at the end <laughs> about right. the connections. Yep. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make you divide those two ideas and dive a little bit more into the first one, which is independence of thought. Sure. What, do you, what do you mean by that? I think it's being able to, despite what everybody's saying, stick to your guns on what you think, and being able to nuance that opinion and differentiate it from why other people are saying it and being able to, you know, be mindful enough to recognize, you know, why other people might be wrong. Because I think that there's so much herd mentality in this world, especially with smart Ivy League kids who, you know, go work on Wall Street, having worked on Wall Street myself, although, you know, I was lucky to work at a fund where we did everything from the ground up. Most decisions on how to invest are people looking to what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's not whispering in the ear, but, you know, you the SEC filings come out and a lot of people look to that and everyone's following their Bloomberg. And, you know, if there's an article written about it, probably it's already too expensive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the, the, the point that I think Jonathan's speaking to here is... Um is very much the herd mentality, it sounds like you're saying, in, yes. in investing, yes. um, which in actually life, segues I think. in life. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So let's address, let's, let's go. Let's you know, take everybody goes to the Hamptons, you know, well, it, if they can. Is that where you got to. your nice tan? No, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a beautiful place, but I think a lot of people just want to go there by virtue of the fact that other people want to go there. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of that in life. So not to say it's not a beautiful place, but there's lots of really beautiful places along the East Coast that mm -hmm. you know may even be nicer. Certainly nicer now because Hamptons are madness. But. Peter Thiel is credited with, or or has said, um, he makes a point about basically being a contrarian, right? Um, and he, You've got I to think, be a contrarian. he explained a little bit deeper what he meant by that was. Not so much being a contrarian, but being an independent thinker. And so how, I mean, in your experience as an investor, yeah. how do you know and how do you make the distinction between independent thought 
and just being a contrarian and and doing what the opposite of what the herd is doing. Well, you know, you can't just do what the opposite of the herd is doing. But if you look at the opposite of what the herd is doing and think for yourself, you can find opportunity. When oil was selling off and all the, every stock in the industry was going down precipitously, you know, a lot of stocks lost more than half their value, maybe three-fourths of their value. There was one stock that was selling off with everything else, which was a li- liquid natural gas exporting company they liquefy it and they export it to other countries Mm -hmm. well i looked at that stock and i also looked at the fact that america has an incredible supply of natural gas and that we're definitely headed towards a future where we're exporting a lot of it and this is the only company that has built terminals that take years to assemble and it was selling off with oil and i knew that no matter what the price of natural gas would be, it'd be cheaper in America than the rest of the world like it is because we have so much more. And that company would be exporting it. And so it wasn't really a play on the price of gas and it didn't really depend so much. It was just an arbitrage on, or, you know, looking at the, being able to say confidently that the prices in America for natural gas would be different than the rest of the world, which most people can say with a lot of confidence. Right. And so no matter how low oil went, you know, this company would be in business. And, you know, I bought the stock at $26 a share, and it's trading, you know, around 45 right now. It's a pretty good ROI there. Where else? Whereas, you know, most other stocks have sold off and stayed sold off. Yeah in that industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a great, um, well, let me ask you, you, two, are you, you know, what, what the, the bigger point is that when you're thinking for yourself, you know, you can say with high confidence that you're going to be right because you're pointing to things that are real. You know, some things, you know, you, you have to do a little research on, but when you're thinking, you know, in that case, I definitely, had a lot of confidence in myself. And, you know, if you continue to make judgments that are against the grain based off of what you see and what logic justifies, you'll, you'll build your confidence in yourself. So as you look out at the world right now, from an investor's perspective, um, what do you see as, again, as this independent thinker, maybe as the opportunities out there, maybe from a macro level and then Maybe tie it back to some of your medical and biotech experience. You know, the biggest problem in investing is having confidence in the investments you make. I can tell you a stock and so can everybody else. But how much confidence do you really have that the stock I'm telling you when it drops is, you know, still going to be just as good as when it was, you know, 20% higher? You don't know. You can't know that, and you can't judge it because you got it from somebody else, and you didn't think for yourself in that case. And so, you know, really thinking for yourself on these issues allows you to gauge your confidence in the decision you're making. What are the things that you do and that you read to keep yourself educated? I read everything I can. I don't think so much about I need to find this or that. I'm just curious about the world. Mm-hmm. And I read the newspaper and I like to know what's going on. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's how you find things. And, you know, for somebody else, what the advice I'd give them is, you know, 
actually, there's a terrible book written by a great investor who makes the thesis in the title, and you don't need to read any more. His name was Peter Lynch, and he basically said, you know, anybody can be a great investor. Just look at the world around you. What do you know? Are you into clothing? What clothing brands are catching fire? You know, are you into audio equipment? What brands are making the best audio equipment and selling like they never sold before, you know? What detergent companies or soap companies or, you know, watch companies, you know, literally think, sit down and think to yourself, what am I interested in? You may think that you have interests that have absolutely no utility that you spend hours browsing the internet on, but I guarantee you there's some companies that are publicly traded behind those. And that's where you should begin. It's a very fundamental principle, and I think it's a great point that you bring up that Invest in what you know. Invest in the things that, A, you're interested in and that you have a competitive knowledge advantage just given the fact that you're exposed to it on a daily basis. Absolutely. You um, spoke to the the point that um, you're not so focused on what you're reading or what you're doing. You're really driven by a curiosity. And I think that that's a very poignant insight uh, and just something and a way of thinking that can really help people Kind of be successful, right? That, that'll take you everywhere in life. You know, you don't listen to, you know, self-help books. You should do this or you should do that. You should just be curious about the world. It's just going to lead you to things that you find most interesting. Mm-hmm. And in those things you find most interesting, it's going to lead you into deeper detail without any conscious effort to do so. You're never going to have to be pushed. It's the difference between being pushed and pulled in life. I bet a lot of people feel that they're pushing themselves constantly harder, going to the gym every day to you know, push themselves there so they can push themselves and put up with their work. Well, I think a lot of smart people live like that, but to be able to be pulled, pulled into something without even thinking about it, but just, you know, it's like your mind's on crack. <laughs> Nah, you just light up about stuff and you know everybody knows those people you know curious people who just light up yeah when they explain things to you mm-hmm. and i think that's something you know yeah will carry you everywhere yeah absolutely yeah and i think that's that's you do that well you're um, one of those people Kyle. I, I like i hope i like to think that i'm a curious of curious guy if nothing else just, i want to drill down a little bit more into this idea of intersecting um, your two backgrounds. I mean, you and I have talked offline a lot about how innovation happens at the intersection of ideas. Um, I would love for you to address the, uh, the intersection of both your philosophy and liberal arts background and your investing knowledge and maybe how those two interact as you see it. That's actually a really great question. And, and the, my, my Rorschach answer is that, you know, philosophy... I'm about to spend a year at Oxford and studying ancient philosophy. And, uh, you know, while this may sound crazy to everybody I've ever said it to, I think it's going to make me a better investor. A lot of people have said to me that I should just spend another year working at, you know, for instance, the hedge fund that I was working at. But I think that having this liberal arts experience and reading philosophy and reading these ancient texts 
you know, teaches you so much about the world and, you know, writing the papers is going to teach me how to think so much better than I could have before. And I think, you know, the ability to think and be honest with yourself and uh, have thoughtful, honest thoughts, you know, allows you to see the world more clearly yeah, and make decisions more soundly. Mm-hmm. It, what I'm hearing is going to philosophy school, among other things, will help you, number one, formulate logic better. It's, it and, comes down, life comes down to judgment. Mm-hmm. And do you make good judgment? When you hire somebody to work for you, you want somebody who has good judgment and is going to make the right decision so that you can trust them and you can delegate to them so you don't have to do or micromanage everything. And reading thoughts about the universe to me and how it was conceived, you know, these most basic questions of, you know, who are we and where are we? And what's meaningful? And what is the world made of? You know, I, I think we'll teach good judgment. What, what I'm kind of hearing from all this and what philosophy does in my experience is um, it forces you to think through the logical sequence of events and really dig deep and see where the flaws in your logic absolutely are. It teaches you how to think rigorously um absolutely and and really forces you to be transparent about i think uh dalio ray dalio another investor um very big on basically what he calls radical transparency and it, it seems like that might be a little bit of what you're going after in kind of this philosophy space uh you also you mentioned um when we were uh offline here uh you'd mentioned you had uh you wanted to chat about freud and, and invest freud freud in the in academic institutions and in the ivory tower really doesn't receive a lot of respect if you go to yale i think there was one class while we were there on freud and it wasn't studying what freud taught his ideas it was him in historical context and, uh, you know, he came up with some of the most interesting, powerful ideas that moved his generation that people really believed, which were totally thrown out when Karl Popper, who is a famous philosopher, came out with something called the Doctrine of Falsifiability, which is, you know, a really, really interesting concept that screwed up science and a lot of modern thinking, which essentially said that if something isn't falsifiable, if you can't justify it, if, if you can't validate it with evidence, then it's not even worth your time thinking about. And so... So there were two... Con- let me just pause there. So there were two concepts. One is... So I'll g- let me give you an example of that okay. quickly so people understand that. You know... Uh, you know, Freud's idea that most of our motivations are unconscious. That's not something we're ever going to be able to prove, but it's a really powerful idea. And, you know, another example would be the compromise we make between our unconscious desires on one hand and the restrictions society places on them on the other is 
who we essentially are. I think that a lot of people would agree with that, but that's something you can never prove. And I think that that is who we are. Mm-hmm. And Freud, you know, cognitive dissonance, the idea of holding two opposed contradictory ideas in our head at the same time, you know, all these things were totally thrown out with Freud because this guy walked on the scene, Karl Popper, and he said that anything you can't validate with evidence isn't worth, isn't science. The definition of science to him is that you have, there has to be evidence Mm -hmm. to back up your thesis. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Life is messy. Mm -hmm. There's so many different pieces, so much going on, you know, most people don't have the time or don't spend the time, and even if they did, couldn't figure out how everything fits together. Right. But you just have to ask yourself, what's the big picture? Am I getting the big picture right? And that's all that really matters. I think that matters in life. I think that matters in love. I think that matters in investing, too, you know, to take it to, yeah. you know, a different level. But, you know, All of that really matters is you get the big, unprovable questions right, and that's where the money is. Yeah. To be able to live with cognitive dissonance is to be an educated person. Most people can't live with contradictory ideas. You know, it has to be this way or that way. But, you know, to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in your head and appreciate them both, That is, you know, not only a sign of education, but something that you get from a liberal arts education. Absolutely. And And something you also get from understanding that the world is messy and, you know, it's the big picture that matters. So tie that back to your investing background, this this, uh, cognitive dissonance and holding two opposing ideas in your mind. How can somebody leverage that maybe in investing in their professional lives you know i uh, there's a lot of different ways i could take this but you know a lot of people focus on some tiny insignificant as karl popper would say falsifiable truth that they're looking for when they're building their model you know i worked at a biotech firm often you know the number it's so hard to pick the numbers it's the big picture that mattered you know, when you're trying to estimate the cash flows of a drug that hasn't been approved yet, where you don't, you can't really know how many patients there actually are because it's a rare disease, for instance, and they're, you know, only the patients that have been in the studies and nobody's actually spent the time or money, which is what the drug companies do to go out and actually find the patients around the world. Mm-hmm. But, so that's where the, the really creative element comes into investing, which is not just black and white. Well, it's not the, necessarily the creative. It, it Really, to come back, and I don't mean to rehash this, but yeah. to getting the big picture important. What's the big, important, unprovable issue? Absolutely. You know, whether it's you're picking out a trend that you think is going to become true in the future. And, you know, like an easy... Easy example of that is autonomous vehicles, you know. One way or another, they're going to be there. And one way or another, whether the laws allow them to be there 
cars, you won't be able to sell a car in five to 10 years that doesn't have, you know, 27 sensors, wink, wink, you know, because nobody's going to buy a car that isn't ready to be there once the laws change because the tech will be there. You can look into the future and understand the big picture on some issues. Mm -hmm. You know, the little details of that, you can't really know. Sure. And it may look different, but, you know, it'd be hard to find someone who doesn't, who's not going to, who's going to say that, you know, autonomous vehicles aren't part of the future. Absolutely. And there are a lot of other generalizations you can make like that that are big picture where you're not getting lost in the details. And, you know, in terms of investing, all you have to do is go out and find a company that plays into that. Mm-hmm. And having a liberal arts background, perhaps you'll be well-rounded enough and able to think outside the box and pick something more unconventional. How does Time Horizon play into your thought process at all and your, your vision of this bigger picture? So that's a good question. I like to figure out things before. The way I think of time differently from other people. Obviously, time horizon is huge because the longer it takes for something to happen, the lower your return is going to be. But in a lot of these things, I think if you can spend a ton of time up front paying attention to the future and thinking about the future, which honestly is fun. It's fun to think about the future and to read every article you can get on tech. And I love that stuff. And maybe you don't love that stuff, but you know, it, it's definitely interesting to put together the pieces of the future and then to live into the future and see how right or wrong you were and readjust how you were thinking about it. But you know, c- to come back to this, I think if you spend a lot of time up front to get there before other people make the connection and you buy that stock first, all that matters is that people realize it sooner than later, not that it actually happens sooner than later because that stock's going to get bid up Mm -hmm. the minute there's a Bloomberg article about it or the minute it's written up all over the New York Times and the minute people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if the technology is real. The value of the company is going to go up on future expectations, right. not whether it's happening to that day or not. Right. You yeah. Know, the month after. That's, uh, that's a great point. It's, it's uh, the liberal arts ability to, um, yeah. to make a very specific example, the liberal arts ability to tie to de- together 50 different things you've read yeah. before that, that publisher yeah, and to have the practice that. doing that, writing all these different papers in college, you know, you do it almost unconsciously mm-hmm. when you're constantly reading things and you doze off. I love this image of Salvador Dali who would sit in his armchair with a ball in his hand and every time he'd do- just be about to doze off, just on the edge of wakeness and sleep, the ball would fall out of his hand and it would wake him up and he'd pull up his thoughts from the edge of being unconscious into consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's how he came up with the subject matter for a lot of his work, which I'm sure you know is wild. 
Last question I have for Jonathan. This is something I ask uh, most of our guests on the show. Looking at our generation, um, what are the things that you think we're doing well as uh, a generation? Then also, what do you think are our areas that we can really improve our opportunities to, to do a better job? Well, it's so hard to answer that question without imposing my own judgments on the world. I think that, and I've noticed this in myself, it's so easy. We all have to lose touch with the reality, which is really the world around us, and think that reality is the world on our phones or, you know, screens. And, you know, I've been thinking even more open-mindedly about this recently and thinking, you know, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe we don't all need to know how to sit there without checking our phone every five minutes or, you know, go a day without our phone, you know. We don't all need to buy the Apple Watch, which isn't going to help us anyways because it has connectivity problems, you know. Which, you know, maybe it would have let us leave our phone at home for a day, but They've got to get the bugs out first. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, children who are 16 grew up with a phone in their hand. They only know how to live through their phone. Sure, they play sports at school and, you know, act in the theater performances, you know, purely interhuman interaction activities. But the rest of it, is so mediated through this kind of diffuse form of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, the strongest form of communication is two people talking to each other. You can read so many things about each other that you can't get talking through the phone or texting or by proxy of someone's social media. But yeah. the world is definitely headed that way. And so the I guess on one hand, I think maybe people should learn how to not live in that world, but it's hard to learn together with people who grew up in that world, i.e. your peers. Mm. You need to learn from your grandmother who was never part of that world, but what happens in 50 years when everybody grew up in that world, I'm really 75, but... So that's one thing I would say we need to reevaluate. Maybe not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Sure. Just an important point of discussion. Something to be mindful of. Yeah. And the second thing is that we need to be mindful of, you know, more things like this. Like the self-awareness of. Yeah. Yeah. Of how we live our lives. Most people just live their lives. They're not mindful of them. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. I think a lot of people uh, don't aren't don't put a lot of thought into their lives, and um, we can certainly continue to do that better. And arguably, liberal arts might help us do that. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show today. Absolute uh, pleasure. We look forward to uh, hopefully having you back in the future. And best of luck in uh, oh, studying well. philosophy in Oxford. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hey guys, it's Kyle Widenauer. And on behalf of the entire Iteration One team, thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate any comments or suggestions you have. We look forward to continuing to offer you new and exciting podcasts 
inspired by successful professionals and entrepreneurs. Click subscribe so you don't miss a single iteration.